Our guest speaker, Reverend Patrick Harbula, has been a spiritual leader, counselor, and coach for over 30 years and reaches hundreds of thousands with his writing and personal and media appearances. Patrick is author of Magic of the Soul, Applying Spiritual Power to Daily Living, which is being used as an elective course for science of mind through CSL. He is founder of the Living Purpose Institute and creator of Life Coaching Certification Program and the Primal Fire Intensive. Patrick was ordained as an independent religious science minister by the late Dr. Earl Barnum in 1985 and affiliated with CSL in 2010. He trained in spiritual psychology under the late Dr. Vivian King. He is also an ordained and recognized as a doctor of divinity through spiritual unity movement of which he was the president for 12 years. He founded Meditation Magazine. He was a formerly a director for Sage Publications, a world-renowned social science publisher. And Patrick will be available after the service to sign his books, which is also available as an audiobook on a USB drive. And in his words, how cool is that? Speaking on from struggle to ultimate freedom, please welcome, you're in for a treat, Reverend Patrick Harbulil. Have fun? How about for this band? Give it up. Oh, I love starting out there. I love playing with great musicians. God, that's fun. Ah, oh, it's good to be back here. This is like a, my home away from home. So let's do an opening prayer. Let's take a nice deep breath. Let out a big heartful sigh. Ah. Let me catch my breath. And do it again. Another deep breath. Let it all out this time. Ah. That feels so good. Let's do it one more time. Let it all go this time. Deep breath. Ah. And as we exhale, we just simply and easily and effortlessly fall into the arms of spirit, the metaphorical arms of spirit. The love, the light, the freedom, the joy, 
the infinite power of spirit. We know that this is who we really are. There is no separation. These very qualities that we talk about being in spirit are in us, moving through us as us. And we trust this truth. We know this truth. We know that this is all that's really important when we get this, when we are centered in the love and the light, the freedom and joy of spirit, everything else comes into perfect clarity, into perfect alignment. This is the secret, my friends. Being right here, right in our hearts, right now. And so it is. It's so good to be back here. Like I said, this is kind of my home away from home. As I said in the first service, don't tell any of the other sinners, okay? Just between you and me. Is this being recorded and put it on the internet? (laughs) This is my favorite place to speak anywhere. Has been. I've been coming almost every year for 10 years now. Uh, And I know that uh, my good friend... Dr. Reverend Patrick, I know that you know how lucky you are to have him as your senior minister, yes? And so I like to think that once a year or so when, uh, when Reverend Patrick's away, I'm your surrogate Patrick. Yeah? Kind of works. So, my talk today is from struggle, from struggle easy for you to say, from struggle to ultimate freedom, from struggle to ultimate freedom. And so I started out, and by the way, I've been meditating, I've been on a spiritual path since I was 18 years old. And so I was meditating for many years, and actually before I ever started studying metaphysics, I was meditating and having mystical experiences as a result of that. I kind of did it backwards for most people. Most people read some stuff, and then they get into spiritual practice, and then and then they experience oneness. Well, I kind of did the spiritual practice first, experienced oneness, and then found out, oh, there's other people who know about this stuff too. I thought I was the only one, right? Anyone else have that experience? Like, wow, you find these communities, there are other people. And so I was involved in spiritual practice, and in fact, I, uh, as a result of my spiritual practice, I decided to publish a, med- a magazine called Meditation Magazine. And I like, it to, I like to call it the most exciting, rewarding, fulfilling, transformational, difficult, challenging, oppressive, heart-wrenching experience of my life or project of my life. Um, And it was all those things because we were doing this wonderful work and we were serving the world and yet it was a struggle, right? We were constantly on on a... shoestring, not knowing where our next print, will, would, print bill would come from, several times, um, at least once a year, oftentimes more than once a year, we'd sit down and say, okay, we're $20,000 short for our print bill, we've got to go to print next week, should we throw in the towel? And every time we'd say, we'd go into meditation, and the answer would be, keep going. So we'd get on the phone, we'd call our call up and start uh, discounting our advertising, soliciting donations because we were a nonprofit. And we came out on time every single, every single uh, month for seven years. 
But it wasn't easy, it was a struggle. And all of that was because, even though I'd been doing all this spiritual practice, I still had this very fixed belief that life is hard, life is a struggle, that anything worthwhile is gonna be difficult. Anyone else ever have that thought? Couple, couple of you? And so I had this epiphany. I was teaching a workshop um, on subpersonality integration um, which subpersonalities are kind of our inner unhealed selves, if you will. You've probably heard of the, the inner child, the inner hurt child, the inner critical parent. And so it's about learning to love these parts of ourselves and ultimately integrating them. So in order to do that, I would do a role play with people, something I learned from transpersonal psychology. So everyone would play out, and actually, sometimes they would have, we'd even have subpersonality dress-up parties. Around Halloween, it was really fun to do that. <laughs> and so people would come dressed up as their favorite subpersonality, or their least favorite subpersonality. And um, so in this workshop, we're, we're role-playing as subpersonalities, and I always play along too, because I can kind of get the energy going, and I just get into the role of whatever subpersonality is playing. I think it was kind of a stubborn subpersonality. And that was my intention. And so one person in the workshop, um, after kind of a lot of not, nothing going on, finally said, I had like an, some arts and crafts out there to kind of get people involved. And she said, well, we could take these arts and crafts and we could kind of build a structure right here in the middle of the room. And I said, playing the role, yeah, and we can build it all the way up, the, up to the ceiling. And she looked at me and she said, no, it doesn't have to be that high. And my automatic response was, well, then why bother? Why bother doing something if it isn't almost or completely impossible? Because my self-worth was so wrapped up in my accomplishment, right, that unless it was near impossible or impossible, then it wasn't worth doing, because I wouldn't feel worthy unless it was impossible to do. So you can imagine there's a lot of disappointment in this in this um, dynamic. And so, in that moment of saying those words, I recognized that came to me, and it wasn't like, you know, a, a, just an overnight flash, it was something that had been building up, that I'd been healing um, through a lot of shadow work and other stuff, and, and um, so it, it, it built up and it came to that moment where I was ready to like receive this understanding that I'd been seeing life as being difficult. That whenever I would, I, I remember after that moment, it became clear to me how often I did this. And somebody called me on the phone, asked me to help out with something, and I saw myself, I watched myself say, think, oh, this is gonna be difficult. Because I didn't know how to do it, right? If I don't know how to do it, it must be difficult. And so I started just turning that around. Every time I noticed that kind of thinking, I'd say, well, why can't it be easy, right? And just started assuming everything is going to be easy. And guess what happened? Everything got easier, right? And so we, we shortly after that, it was right around the time we were ending Meditation Magazine. Originally, we had thought to publish for, seven year, for three years, rather. Um, and if it reached the level of success we wanted, then we would keep going. And if not, then we would call it, call it a day and do something else. And, uh, but we had so much fun doing it, even though it was a struggle, that we continued to do it for four more, ne more years. And then finally um, decided it was time. In fact, we went in, the US economy went into a recession back then. 
All, half of our advertisers were wiped out, and we just said, now is the time. So I decided then, at that moment, well, what do I want to do now that this is over that will bring me joy and that will be easy, right? And so my first thoughts were, because it was a small organization, I, I had many hats, and so I was the, uh, the uh, executive editor, so I ran the whole operation. I, did, I handled most of the, the larger advertising accounts. I directed the circulation, the, the subscription renewals. Um, I did page layout sometimes. I wrote articles. And so I, thought, and so I thought, well, I could go in any one of these areas. And I thought, well, if I go into management or sales, I could probably make a lot of money at that. But that wasn't feeling joyful to me. In fact, I interviewed for a job and I came out of it with my stomach in knots because I was just burnt out on responsibility. So I thought, thought, well, what would bring me the most joy to do? And I love writing, but I knew I was going to write in my spare time. I knew I was going to be writing books. And so uh, the other thing I loved doing was page layout. Um, it was kind of this somewhat creative thing. And by the way, I also wanted to get a steady paycheck, which I'd never had in my life. I'd been an entrepreneur all my life as a tennis pro and then meditation magazine. So um, I decided I'm going to do page layout sometime. And so I applied for a job uh, at two places. And the second place was Sage Publications, academic, uh, world-renowned academic social science publisher. So I, I took a job at basically an entry-level position because that would bring me joy. And interesting thing happened. They noticed my skills and that I had attained from running Meditation Magazine and putting my spiritual uh, practices into, uh, into practice in a, in a business setting. And people saw leadership qualities in me. And so I never intended to climb up the corporate ladder, but um, I was kind of pushed up. And so I was promoted to supervisor and then managing editor and then finally director. And I absolutely know that that success would have not happened like in a, over the period of about two years, which is a pretty, pretty quick rise, if I had chosen the job that I thought would bring me more money but not as much joy, right? In fact, I probably would have failed at one of those jobs because it wasn't bringing me joy. So this is a secret, my friends. And here's another side effect that when I've talked about this, I... I haven't shared before, but because my beautiful wife is sitting here today in the audience, it occurred to me that the other magical thing that came out of that decision to go work at that place is that's where I met my wife. Um, 16 years ago, no, well, no, it was over 20 years ago. We've been living together for 16 years ago, but that was like over 20 years ago that we met. And uh, we're celebrating our 14th anniversary Tuesday here in Edmonton with you all. Wednesday. Oh, my God, I got it wrong. <laughs> Be very, very careful. <laughs> um, and so she actually hired me, as a matter of fact, in my first job at Sage. And then I got promoted above her, so turned around is fair play. And I got to boss her around. So, um, so I'm going to share with you three components of my spiritual practice that have led me to what I experience now as ultimate freedom. So number one is expecting things to be easy. 
as I say in The Magic of the Soul, or write in The Magic of the Soul, if we choose magic, we'll approach every goal with the belief that its accomplishment will be effortless. As with many goals, especially those related to consciousness, we look back and, and see how easy it was. How could I have ever chosen such limitation and fear when freedom that was there all along for me? Once we get to the place of consciousness, life becomes easy. I heard it this way or read it this way on our minister's lift serve. We were having a little discussion about treat and move your feet, which means, you know, having a consciousness for something and then taking action. And which is more important, having the consciousness or taking the steps? And I used to think it was taking the steps. Now I believe it's all about the consciousness. In fact, the steps come easily and naturally when we have the consciousness. And the way this one minister put it was, if we don't have the consciousness for a particular outcome, then everything we try will not work. Makes perfect sense, right? If we do have the consciousness for a particular outcome, then anything we try will work. And that's what I see in coaching people is once, you know, when I do life coaching, it used to be about, you know, here's some action steps, let's help people follow through on them and that'll get them the results that they want. Now that's totally shifted for me. It's really all about what I call consciousness coaching because when people get the consciousness, then you don't have to hold them accountable for the action steps because they want to do them. Once the consciousness there is ha happens easily and effortlessly. So another piece to this then is the next major opening that occurred for me is um, I felt that I was really good at manifestation and so I decided to write this book called The Magic of the Soul, How to Manifest What You Want in Life was probably would have been the subtitle. And I felt that I was really good at manifestation because I had manifested at the time um, a, you know, the corporate job, um, a, a marriage of 13 years, that was before this wife, um, that, uh, that was a good marriage at the time, and I was physically healthy, I was an athlete in my 20s, and a funny thing happened on the way to the magic of the soul, everything fell apart, I became chronically ill, the marriage ended, the job went away. And so initially, I resisted this experience because after all, I'd been meditating since I was 18. I had this daily spiritual practice. I'd been a minister for over 15 years. This was at 40 years old. And by the way, my father, and, and I was, and so I was chronically ill for, for um, three years and recovering for another two years and really it took me probably 10 years to get back to where I was able to do everything that I, I could before. And interestingly enough, my father died at 42 of um, cancer that was not diagnosed for several years. So I was beginning to see the proverbial writing on the wall that maybe I'm approaching the end of this journey. Because there were times when I couldn't get out of bed for, for uh, two weeks at a time. Part of, of why the corporate job went away, right? And so... And all the while, I am resisting the experience. Even though I was, uh, you know, I went the traditional route, went to Mayo Clinic, and they couldn't find any diagnosis. I, you know, was of course doing spiritual mind treatment and meditation, deep meditation, going into theta brain waves three times a day. I was doing energy healing, um, throwing lightning bolts at it. Nothing was changing the experience. And all the while, I'm resisting this, saying, why is this happening to me? 
And so I finally came to a place where I gave up. Not in an apathetic way, but in a surrendering way. And I said, you know, if I am to die from this, if my physical being is to cease to continue on this earth plane journey, I'm going to use this experience of dying to understand at the deepest level possible who I am as a sacred being. And guess what happened? I began to heal. But it wasn't a direct line to healing. What would happen is I would start to feel better and then it would feel so good just to have a little bit of energy back, to feel a little bit of vitality. And then I'd go out and I'd take a walk or do things that I used to do that would put me back in bed. Then I would resist again. And then the symptoms would increase again. And then I'd remember, oh yeah, it was that surrendering thing that got me feeling better. So I'd surrender again. So I got better and better, lengthening the times of surrender and shortening the times of resistance. And it was as though my soul, and I used to say as though, and I corrected myself in the last service, it wasn't as though. My soul had designed the absolute perfect scenario, situation for me to learn how to be in a virtual, consistent, virtually consistent state of surrender. So I ask you, what would life be like? What is life like in a consistent state of surrender? Does that feel easy and effortless? As I say in The Magic of the Soul, why do I wait till the absolute crescendo of struggle to surrender, when I was first writing the book, right? Um, But what I learned is to surrender at the first sign of struggle. What's that like? As soon as I see struggle, to surrender. And so the the practice then became for me to look for the magic in every experience. So the, the message of the book became rather than only it's magical to create what we want in life, what's even more magical is to appreciate what we have. Right? And not only the things that obviously bring me joy, but especially the things that challenge us the most. Because that's when we grow the most. As, as conscious beings, don't we look back in our life at all the challenging times and say, yeah, that's when I grew the most. We might even say, that was a blessing after all in retrospect. But what would we do at the first sign of struggle, we usually resist, right? And when we resist, by the way, we are... Th- we are throwing our power out away from us. When we accept, when we embrace, then our power, then we actually embody our power. Another way of saying that is, anytime I resist resist something, I create a block in energy, okay? And if it's a physical symptom, the block of energy happens in the place in my body, in my energy body, where I'm resisting. If I have a pain in my knee, and I'm resisting that. Think of my, of my knee, because my wife is having, has been having some knee problems. But I caught her one night, lying on the bed, talking to her knee, saying, I love you. <laughs> right? Because when we resist, then we're se- and, and I say, oh God, I hate this pain, I'm sending negative energy to that pain. How can it heal if I'm sending en- negative energy to it? So when I resist, I keep create a block in the energy. When I embrace and and love, 
then uh, the, the energy begins to flow. And of course, the energy is the energy of love because that's the only energy that there is. So this became my spiritual practice then, is to look for the magic in every situation, to recognize that there is a blessing in everything, that our souls, I fully believe this, I fully see it when I coach people, one of the most magical parts of this experience, that's my favorite part of my work is coaching people one-on-one, is that as a result of this practice, I can see, I can intuit and see why their soul is creating the situation that they're resisting and what is the magic or freedom and joy that wants to evolve from it. In fact, that's the way I like to put it because um, in our teaching, this, this is kind of a remnant of an old belief in our teaching and, and we haven't completely resolved this, I find, is if I, something happens that I don't like, then I say, well, what was the consciousness the error in thinking that created this situation, right? Anyone ever do that? Or even worse, when you tell somebody about a situation you don't, that you don't like in your life and they say, well, what did you, what was the consciousness that created that situation? And that instantly make, uplifts you and makes you feel better, right? <laughs> Not. So here's a better way to phrase the question when we come up, up against challenge or something we don't like, is what is the greater freedom joy or love that wants to evolve from this situation, right? I like to quote um, Suzanne Summers, who was, everyone remember who Suzanne Summers was? Three's Company, right? And by the way, when I was 16 years old watching Three's Company, I didn't ever anticipate that I would be quoting Suzanne Summers for her <laughs> metaphysical understanding. It's not why I was watching the show at the time. But she was one of the the homes when we had these fires in, in Malibu a few several years back that burned to the ground and they were interviewing her standing out in front of her home and the smoldering ashes of her home and they said you know how do you feel right now and the first words out of her mouth were I know something good will come from this right and you gotta know something good came from it because that was her intention something good would have come from it anyway it always does but she had to realize it much super sooner because she was open to the good, yeah? Because if you're resisting saying this is a horrible thing, it's kind of hard to see the truth. It's kind of hard to see what the greater freedom or joy is that's emerging from this. And if we don't see it in the moment, that's okay. It's more about asking the question than getting the answer, right? Because as soon as I ask, what's the greater freedom, joy, or love, or magic, or opportunity for growth, or sacredness that wants to evolve here, then I change my relationship to the situation. I'm no longer a victim of this situation, which leaves me powerless. I am now utilizing this situation to actually empower myself as a sacred being. And so what came out of this then, the natural byproduct of this, and that's number two, by the way. Number one is expecting life to be easy. Number two is looking for the magic in every experience. And so what came out of this, then, is a path of joy. Number one, fear just dissolved, because if I know that no matter what happens, something good's going to come from it, then there's nothing to resist in life, right? So when I was called up by my doctor after having a biopsy um, five years ago now and told on the phone that you have prostate cancer 
And this is not the kind of, it was an aggressive cancer. It's not the kind of cancer that you live with. This is the kind of cancer that you die from. Um, I was in shock because I was not 99% sure when I got the biopsy. I was 100% sure there was nothing wrong with my body. And I got the diagnosis, but when I hung up, even though I was in shock and I couldn't believe it, what occurred to me is that something good from, will come from this. And absolutely did. If I had more time, I could run down the whole list of, of wonders that came out of that experience. And even though there was some fear during this period while I was going through healing um, that I might die from this, most of the time, I'm going to say 95% of the time, I was anticipating that it would be a sacred journey, and it was. I knew something good would come from it. And I am 100% cancer-free now, five years later. Thank you. I'm feeling better than I ever have in my life, except for my knee and my hip and my... But they're minor things, and they're getting better. And it's all good. It really is. I think all, all of our spiritual teachers are saying the same thing in different ways. Our most, our most read spiritual teachers these days. Byron Katie says, love everything. And she means it. Every experience. Eckhart Tolle says, give up resistance to what is. Um, Robert Scheinfeld in Busting Loose from the Money Game says, appreciate everything. I say look for the magic in everything. August Gold in the prayer chest says, invite everything. Invite every experience. My favorite quote of the year was in Pam Grout's uh, E Cubed when she says, when, you f when we realize that whatever's happening right now is the perfect thing to be happening right now, then we are aligned with the field of potential, which means the power of the universe is available to me in this moment. Because you see, when I resist anything, then I'm, as I said, I'm th we're throwing our power out away from us. If I have any degree of resistance to something happening or not happening that I, whoops, I'm losing something here, or something happening that um, I don't want to happen, then I have some fear about that. And so I'm putting negative energy into the, into the situation with my fear, right? But when I embrace, when I invite, then all of my power is available to me. So then it's this interesting dichotomy. Is the less attached I am to any outcome, then the more freedom I feel, the more freedom I feel, the more power I have to create what I want. I used to think, wow, I'm pretty good in manifestation, but it took a lot of work. Now things happen easily and effortlessly because I have no attachment to the results. Does that make sense? The less attachment there is, the more power I have. So, that's number three of the openings that occurred to me is non-attachment, which is a natural result of looking for the magic in every experience. It's being non-attached. And the fourth thing is living from a place of joy, which I got, you know, um, 30 years ago 
when I had that epiphany about life could be easy and I started choosing things that would bring me joy, but that has continued to expand. And I'm going to say in the last four years has just kind of exploded in a way. One of the things I, I coach people to do and we'll talk about in the workshop later today is live from an inner experience of freedom and joy. And so a practice that I got from Busting Loose from the Money Game, which Robert Scheinfeld calls living in responsive mode, is wake up in the morning and decide what will bring me the most joy today and then go do that. Now, on one hand, that might sound obvious, but I find that most people, most of the time, do not, bring what brings them, do, not do what brings them joy. And as human beings, we tend to do what we think will bring us the most joy, or, or at least more joy than the alternative, right? But we forget that that's why we're doing it. We think, I have to do this thing. I have to go to this job that I don't really like. Or, I, you know, maybe I do like it, but I don't like being there five days, you know, 40 hours a week, or 50 hours a week, or 60 hours a week, whatever it is. Or, you know, um, I have to raise these teenagers, right? But the alternative of getting rid of them would bring me less joy ultimately, right? But I forget that and I think I just got to do this thing. Um, so then, but by asking every morning what brings me joy and then going and do that um, or recognizing the greater joy that's in it for me, I may do the same thing. But if I'm doing it for joy, I guarantee you that the result, the outcome will be far more powerful and fulfilling than if I'm doing it because I have to. Make sense? So I have, not all of my clients, some of them are still being nurtured into this way of, of, of being or this practice of waking up or asking, letting joy be the compass for my life. Should I do this or should I do that? Right there, the word should should tell you that it's the wrong question. What will bring me the most joy? I have some clients, for example, they don't like working out. They don't like going to the gym, but they want to be in good shape, right? So encourage them. Rather than thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to force myself to go to the gym three times a week, what would it be like to simply focus on the outcome? How will I feel? This is what I mean by long-term joy, because I don't see joy as, as the opposite of sadness. That's happiness. I see joy as how I define it is as a pervasive spiritual quality that can be present even in the moment of sadness or loss or grief. And it's long-term joy. It is soul joy. So if I ask, how will I feel a month from now? Well, what will bring me the most joy looking back a month from now or six months from now or a year from now? So it might not bring me happiness or gratification to go to the gym today. But if I think, how will I feel a month from now if I went to the gym few days a week for the last month. Oh, I'll feel great, right? Now I'm in the energy of joy, or what I like to call living from the energy of the completed vision. Not just affirming something or visualizing something or doing spiritual mind treatment, but living in the energy, from the energy of that completed vision. Does that make sense? So, so non-attachment, so it's Expecting life to be easy. It's looking for the magic in every situation, which leads to non-attachment. And then finally, living from an inner experience of freedom and joy. You know, even people I find that have been in this teaching for, for years, decades, 
myself included, and many of the ministers and practitioners I coach, um, we still tend to, even though we know these principles, use the, the world of form to inform our inner experience. Once I get this thing I'm treating for, the new car, perfect health, abundance, then I'll be fulfilled, right? But that's a trap because it never works that way. As long as I'm putting my happiness in the future based on some event, I'm saying that the world of form has power over me, right? So I just, so we just, it's a journey of learning how to reverse that process and recognizing that if I have the feeling in here first, then the manifestation becomes easy. It just unfolds effortlessly and easily. And you know what the cool thing about that is again, that proves that life is easy. Because we can't, we can't control everything that goes on in the world of form. The one thing that we can influence is how we feel inside. And what I know is that when we're living from a, free, a place of freedom, love, and joy, and self-love, which is the most important practice in all of this, it is my baseline spiritual practice, accepting and loving myself no matter what, when that occurs, then all of the information, all the metaphysical teachings in every book that has ever been published comes into alignment easily and effortlessly, even if you've never read it. Because we all know people who, have, who live charmed lives who have never studied one you know, bit of metaphysical um, literature. Why? Because they love themselves and they're experiencing joy in their lives. So it's fun to study and to get it at a mental level and, and see that, but the, the place to get it first or to make the journey so much easier, to reverse it from a, a path of, of having to learn stuff and then integrate and get it, is to simply feel the joy and love first and right now. In fact, close your eyes. And just feel in your heart freedom, joy, and love. And I want you to notice how easy it is. It doesn't take any effort. In fact, all it takes is surrendering everything else. And what always emerges is what's left. Freedom, joy, and love. It's who we are. And just open your eyes when you're ready. So, I'm going to finish with a joke. I don't know. I'm going to tell a different joke than I did in the first service. How many were here at the first service? Anyone? Okay, you don't want to hear the same joke, right? Okay, we're going to do a different joke. And it really fits with this theme anyway. So there's these three guys out for uh, a Sunday afternoon of golf. They weren't, weren't able to come to the workshop because they were golfing. And uh, the first guy steps up to the tee, and this guy is, um, he's been golfing for a long time, and he really takes his golf game seriously. And you probably heard of him, his name is Moses, okay? So Moses steps up to the tee, and he's really concentrating, he's really focused. He takes this very focused swing, he lets it go. It's flying out there toward the green, it's over the fairway, it's straight, but it's going to land short before the trap, which is a big lake. And so the ball bounces before the, the lake, and Moses steps up. He raises his club up in the air. The waters part. The ball rolls, rolls through. 
lands about 20 feet from the cup on the green. Next guy steps up, and this guy hasn't been uh, golfing as long as Moses, but, uh, but he's been very focused on his game, and he's gotten quite good. You've heard of him probably, too. His name is Jesus. Jesus steps up, and he, he's really focused, really concentrating. He takes this big swing. It's headed out just as straight as Moses' ball. It's going even further, but it's going to land right in that lake, at the ed, far edge of the lake. And so Jesus steps up, he raises up his hand, the ball stops about six inches from the lake and just hovers there. And so he just calmly walks out on the water, <laughs> taps the ball on the green about 10 feet from the cup. Third guy steps up. Third guy's absolutely the opposite of the first two. He's not concentrating at all, doesn't seem to have a care in the world. He's joking around, he's laughing with Moses and Jesus. He comes up, he doesn't even take a practice swing. He takes this wild, one-handed swipe at the ball and it just, it hooks way off to the side of the course. It bounces off the roof of this caddy shack. It goes, bounces onto the freeway and it's ricocheting between cars, it hits, it hits this big semi and comes bouncing back onto the roof of the, cafe, of, of the caddy shack. It goes down to the gutter. It rolls along the gutter, down the drain pipe, onto the fairway. It's rolling for that same lake. It hits a rock, bounces up, lands on a lily pad. A frog comes up and grabs the ball in his mouth. Just then, an eagle swoops down, snatches up the, the frog. The frog screams out of fright. The ball drops out of his mouth, straight down into the cup. Moses turns to Jesus and says, God, I hate playing with your dad. <laughs> so I guarantee that if you do it for joy, the result is always better than if you are, have attachment, okay? I think I'll end with a story. Uh, oh, let me tell you about the workshop first. So the workshop today is called Live Your Passion, Life Purpose Here and Now. It's a workshop I've been doing for years and years. I did it here the first time I was here about 10 years ago, and I decided it's, it's time because I've done all my other workshops here in between. So, um, and, uh, and it's not the same people that were here 10 years ago, mostly. So. Um, I decided it's time to do it again. And it's, it's really my most popular workshop. And in it, we help, uh, I have some techniques that help people to identify, to get clear, to deepen your understanding of your life purpose. One of the questions that I like to ask in, that, in this, this process is, what is the most important quality or guidance you did not receive as a child? And I let people kind of, I let the wheels turn after I ask that question. And then the follow-up question that is, how does it feel when you create that experience for someone else? And that's where the light goes on for most people, is what we didn't get enough of as a child is what inspires us to create it in the world. It drives our passion. And so guess what? If what we didn't get enough of inspires us to create in the world, then it's not a liability. It is, in fact, your greatest strength. And this flies in the face of most self-help that says, here's another process to get over what you didn't get enough of, to fix something, right? What this says is coming back to its inner experience that what if there's nothing to get over? What if you're perfect just the way you are with all of your strengths and all of your perceived weaknesses? 
What if the only thing to get over is the belief that there's something to get over? Once again, doesn't that make life easy? I don't have to strive to change or get better. Carl Rogers said, it reminds me, I have a whole bunch of quotes here that I didn't use. Oh, well, whatever. I'll use this one. Carl Rogers said, the curious paradox is that only when I accept myself exactly the way I am, only then can I change. Only when I accept the world as it is, can it then easily and effortlessly change for me, I would add. So um, my wish would be that everyone here could come to the workshop because I know from experience that the energy that we create will be so vibrant that we'll all be walking on air when we leave this place. So if you uh, don't have plans, please join us. If you do have plans, change them. If you absolutely can't change them, um, uh, fill out my, my uh, sign-up sheet and next time I'm in town, I'll let you know that I'm gonna be here. And, uh, or, and or come to the meditation workshop on Wednesday or talk to me about the retreat happening Friday through Sunday. Um, if you want an extended time of, really, and the retreat is all about what I'm talking about here. It is about having permission to be who you are in the moment and accept that. And when that happens, then something magical opens up. So whatever wants to be healed, whatever's ready to be healed, just comes up naturally in the supportive environment, supportive group environment. So I'll finish with a story about my teacher, Vivian King, who um, was mentioned in my introduction. She was my teacher of um, transpersonal psychology, psychosynthesis. So after I finished my four-year training with her, she, um, she moved away. We sent cards every now and then and uh, exchange an email. And uh, I, I was at a, a New Year's Eve party and one of the students in, in my class came up to me and said, did you hear about what happened to Vivian? I said, no. She was driving through Texas and was hit by a drunk driver and became a quadriplegic. Her, um, her, she was in a coma for three, no, I think it was six weeks. Her head was swollen the size of a basketball and they were just moving her, so happened, that weekend to, to Long Beach from Texas. And uh, so I went to visit her. And her head was no longer swollen. Her face was greatly distorted, though, but she still had this kind of impish smile. And um, so it was brainstem damage. She couldn't move her arms or legs uh, or have use of her voice. She communicated by she had a laser pen strapped to her glasses, and she would point to the picture of a keyboard spell out words. Um, she improved over time. Well, let me back up a little bit. So they were just deciding where, uh-oh, there we go. Must be time for me to, to get off. <laughs> yeah, he's so good. <laughs> Sound guy said that, I said, I don't need it, whatever. I'm a professional. <laughs> So anyway, but that gave us a laugh. So it was all, everything's good. It's all perfect. No, thank you. So um, where was I? Oh, yeah. So they were deciding where she, they would move her next. It was either going to be Orange County, which is a ways away, or San Fernando Valley, which I lived. And so I said, well, if she comes to San Fernando Valley, I can come and kind of help out with her physical therapy and visit her. And, and they didn't know where I lived, but she ended up moving to a 
rehabilitation, rehab place, um, one block from my house. So it was clear that I was meant to do some interaction there. So I showed up and I visited with her a few times a week and helped with her physical therapy, did some um, energy healing and, and spiritual mind treatment. And it sounds like I'm doing a lot for her maybe, but really I was the one receiving the gift. She was such an inspiration to all of her caregivers, all of her friends. I asked her once, are you angry at the person who did this to you? And she looked at me confused and she learned to speak in whispers with a magnif with magnified and so you could understand her if you had been speaking with her for a while. And she said, I don't have time to be angry. I gotta focus on my healing, right? If her, she was investing her, her energy and her anger, she wouldn't be able to heal as much. So we, she got to be where she was able to work on the keyboard a little bit. It would take her like an hour though to write, a, or several hours to write a paragraph. Um, one time I was at her place and she was, she was eating and she had this mechanical arm that would bring her food up to her face because she wanted to feed herself rather than be fed. And she would be getting food all over her face and dropping all over her apron and would be this real struggle. And as I say that, you might think, wow, she must have been really challenged by that. I would feel embarrassed having someone watch me in that situation, but not her. She would be smiling and laughing the whole time because she understood that she was not her body. That's what she taught us in spiritual psychology, is we are more than our body, our feelings, and our mind. We are the soul. And so she said to me a year before she left this plane, um, she said, as long as I am in a, spirit, in a human body, she said, I'm a, let me back up, she said, I'm a, I'm a speaker who can no longer speak, I'm a writer who can no longer write, but as long as I have a human body, I can still remain a presence of power, peace, and love, and joy on this planet. So if Vivian can remain a presence of power, and peace, and love, and joy, with all of that challenge, then every one of us can in any moment, yes? Yes. Thank you.